Well, good morning to all those who are online. Um, it's sad that we can't all be together, um, but it's good that we can still come together around God's Word in this way. Well, as we come to God's Word, uh, I'll start with prayer. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your Word. Thank you that it teaches us, encourages us, empowers us to live for you. I pray, Father, you would give us ears to hear your word and hearts to obey your word. I pray, Lord, you would help me to speak clearly and faithfully today. And I ask this in the name of your precious Son, our Lord Jesus. Amen. Well, since becoming a Christian in the 1980s, I've attended a number of different churches, denominational and non-denominational. With any, any church, uh, there are many differences, as Andrew pointed out earlier on. Um, political views, social views, um, there are different age groups and personalities. People with different interests, uh, people from different socioeconomic backgrounds. And whilst the, go uh, the, the gospel unites us as brothers and sisters in Christ, there's often been an undertone uh, or, in, or in some cases an overtone of, of disharmony uh, with one another. It's been my observation that we actually struggle uh, to live in harmony with one another. Now, str struggling to live in harmony with one another is not something new, obviously. Um, these words were written approximately 2,000 years ago. And uh, they're needed now as much as they ever were. The encouragement uh, for us to live in harmony with one another is something that we, we need to be aware of and we need to be working hard at to achieve. Well, what does Christian harmony look like and, and why is it necessary? Uh, let me start with the why first. Because our living in harmony together is a powerful witness to the world around us, that Jesus is real and that he changes people's lives. In most organisations, you'll find to some extent jealousies and conflict and the like, but we as God's people are called to be entirely different. We're actually called to live in harmony with one another here. Secondly, there are very serious consequences for sin, including the sins that cause disharmony. If we backpedal for a moment, we see that Peter's just finished telling married men to be considerate and respectful of their wives. Why? Because to not live in such a way will hinder their prayers. Their communication with God will be affected. Peter knows that to not live in harmony with one another will have serious consequences. It will have a serious impact on our church and our witness for Jesus. If you look at verses 9 to 12, you'll notice the relationship again between sin and God, particularly God hearing our prayers. We see that God's people are called to inherit a blessing and a blessed life will be characterised by verse 10, keeping our tongues from evil, and verse 11, doing good and seeking peace. 
such a person, verse 12, God will hear their prayers. But notice conversely, God's against those who speak evil and pursue controversy rather than peace. So the call to live in harmony with one another sandwiched between verses that warn of serious consequences of sin. Prayers will not be heard and God will turn his face against those who do evil. And in the same way, there are very serious consequences if we sin by living in disharmony with one another. Our testimony as a church will be affected and God for a time may turn his face away from those who are involved in it. What are the characteristics that we're called to pursue if we are to have harmony in our midst as God's people? Well, the first characteristic is in verse 8. And it's our need to be sympathetic. We are to do our best to feel how others feel or put ourselves in others' shoes. When we know what someone else is going through, It motivates us to be compassionate. It motivates us to love, not only in word, but in deed. When we're sympathetic to someone's plight, we're much more likely to act compassionately in love toward that person. Notice how Peter calls us to love one another as our own family. See in verse 8? Love as brothers and sisters. Why? because one loves one of the chief characteristics of being in God's family. You know, it's a real shame that we're not sitting here together today, because I'd ask each of us to look around at each other. All those people that you would see, you are called to love. There are people at at home at the moment sitting on their own, who belong to this church. Have we made a phone call? As Andrew has every week has encouraged us to do. Have we sent a text? Have we helped in some way? Our brother or sister at home. Finally, all of you live in harmony with one another. Be sympathetic, love as brothers and sisters, be compassionate. Does that sound like you? Now you may have noticed that I've not mentioned the last word of verse 8. And it's our need for humility. Many a church problem stems from pride. Uh, Not the pride we take in trying to do something well for God, but the pride that says I'm better than you or... I'm more important than you. My needs are more important than your needs. You are my servant, but I will not serve you. You see, true humility is not self-focused. It's actually focused elsewhere. It recognizes that God's first, others are second, and we ourselves are actually last. Humility esteems others more highly than ourselves, and it bears with others' failings, and it recognizing, sorry, it recognizes that our own failings are considerable. It 
Perhaps the greatest sign of true humility is personal surrender to the will of God as revealed in his word. True humility obeys and esteems God's word above all else. Um, I have a dear friend who has served in Africa for perhaps 30 years or more. He suffered a great deal for Jesus. Uh, It's cost him much of his life. He's gone without food. He's had sleepless nights. He's been in dangerous situations that could easily have resulted in his death. Um, And whilst on the field, he and his wife had a disabled son born to them. And as a result, many of them told to leave Africa. But he persisted in telling people about Jesus anyway. His work involved much personal hardship and self-sacrifice. I once said to him, what's it take to be a missionary in Africa? And he said it takes three things to be a missionary. Humility, humility, and humility. You see, truly humble people have God's priorities as their priorities and the priority of others as their priorities. My friend who served in Africa is a man who could have been many things. Um, He's very clever. He could have been a doctor or a professor in many different fields. He could have lived a comfortable life in a local church just like ours. But instead, he and his wife gave their life for Jesus in Africa. He saw God's priorities as being more important than his own. That's what true humility looks like. True humility understands the call and admonition of Matthew chapter 23, verses 11 and 12, where Jesus says, The greatest among you will be a servant, for whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. Do you think more highly of yourself than you do of others? Do you need to humble yourself for the sake of harmony in our church? Peter says here we must humble ourselves if we're to live in harmony with one another. Well, as we continue on in verses 10 to 12, Peter quotes Psalm 34. Continuing on with his encouragement to live in harmony, he says, We as God's people won't be repaying evil with evil or insult with insult. Instead, we will bless others, and in doing so, we will inherit a blessing. Do you want to inherit a blessing? Verse 10. You must keep your tongue from evil and deceit. You must turn from evil and do good. You must seek peace and pursue it. Notice the word that repeats three times in two verses there. Must, must, must. These things are what we are called to if we are to live harmoniously with one another and be blessed by God. Peter then goes on to ask in verse 13, who's going to harm you if you are sympathetic, loving, compassionate, humble, keeping your tongue from evil, turning from evil and doing good, seeking and pursuing peace? 
Who's going to harm you if you do such things? Well, look, the sad reality is that there will be still people out there who may wish you harm. But the original Greek language here used um, suggests that it's unusual to suffer for doing good. But should we suffer for doing good? We are blessed by God. And if we find ourselves suffering for doing what's right at the hands of someone else, verse 14 says, we are not to fear them or their threats. We are instead, as verse 15 says, to set apart Christ as Lord in our hearts. Um, Here I believe we have the answer to how we can live for God in a world that is so... Look, is in so many ways opposed to God and his people. We are to set apart Christ as Lord in our hearts. It's a similar call to 1 Peter 1.13. Um, we are to set apart Christ as Lord in our hearts. It, it is to resolutely prepare our hearts and minds for action, for self-control and focus on Jesus. Um, the word prepare in 1 Peter 1.13 is, is the Greek word for hard work. And setting apart Christ as Lord in our hearts is indeed hard work. Um, because the world, uh, our sinful nature and the devil all do their best to stopping us putting, putting Jesus first. Um, to set our part... Um, Christ as Lord in our hearts is a conscious and a willful thing. It doesn't just happen. We're called to set apart Christ above all else. We're to strive to make Jesus our heart's desires and make his priorities our priorities. If you want to see what setting apart Christ actually looks like, look at Paul's life. Look at Peter's life, Stephen's life. Or a bit closer to home, the lives of Graham and Esther Staines. They were Australian missionaries who who went to India to serve Jesus. Uh, 22 years ago, Graham and his two young sons were burned to death after being prevented from leaving their car which some Hindu fanatics had set on fire as they slept. As I understand, threats had been previously made to Graham and his family to leave the leprosy mission where they worked. But by God's grace, they did not give way to fear. Graham and Esther had set apart Christ as Lord in their hearts, knowing that the tribal people in the surrounding area needed Jesus more and they needed a comfortable life. And many came to Christ as a result of their faithful witness, which infuriated the local Hindus. Graham and his two sons gave their life for Jesus. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 16, verses 24 and 25, If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it.
but whoever loses his life for me will find it. Graham and his two sons found life. Publicly and with the world watching, Esther, his dear wife, forgave those who committed this horrendous crime. Um, The impact of such forgiveness in in India was immeasurable um, in a society where Forgiveness for such crimes is just absolutely unheard of. Um, I believe as a result, many more would have come to Christ because of such a powerful witness. Um, You see, Graham and Esther, by God's grace, had set apart Christ as Lord in their hearts. By setting apart Christ as Lord, we too can be empowered with God's help to do that which we would not otherwise be able to do you want to overcome fear and live a life that trusts in God's enabling grace alone, then set apart Christ as Lord in your heart. And when we do so, we'll find that our hearts will be spurred on to evangelism. We'll want to actually tell others about Jesus. And to this end, we we need to be prepared. Verse 15 says that, We are to be prepared to answer those who may ask us about Jesus. Jesus often changed people's lives and commanded them to go and tell others about what he had done for them. Are you ready to tell others of the good things that Jesus has done for you? Your personal witness is a very powerful testimony that others cannot deny. So as you set apart Christ as Lord in your heart. Think about how you might be able to prepare yourself to tell others about Jesus. And of course, we do it, as verse 16 tells us, with gentleness, respect, and uh, with a good conscience so that others won't have reason to disbelieve or reject our message. Well, let's move on to verses 18 to 22. Um, which Gail has already read. I want to acknowledge that much of what I say about this passage has come as a result of the work of others. Um, And with that said, it's, uh, it's fair to say that this passage is one of the most difficult passages in all of Scripture, I think. Uh, According to one commentator, there's uh, 18 different interpretations of the passage. Given this the case, I would like to look at what is clear from the passage, particularly in regards to Christian suffering, as this is the context of these verses. Um, You've probably noticed that the passage itself is sandwiched between chapter 3, verse 17, and chapter 4, verse 1, both of which are about suffering. It's important to see that our passage here has a context, It doesn't come out of nowhere. With that said, this passage suggests that we as Christians need to be ready to suffer. Um, For much of modern history, the West has been insulated from the severest forms of persecution. But this has not been the case for Christians worldwide. Um, And even now, many Christians in the world are persecuted and suffer greatly for Jesus. Just think about China, North Africa, 
uh, the Middle East, uh, and many others, of course. A friend of mine in India recently informed me that a number of Christian pastors um, that he personally has contact with in the last 12 months have been martyred for their faith. And numerous are made homeless. It shouldn't come as a surprise when we ponder the words of Jesus in Matthew chapter 24, verse 9, where Jesus says, You will be hated by all nations on account of my name. And as our society becomes increasingly hostile toward God, we too are going to suffer ridicule, accusations of bigotry, intolerance, and who knows what else. So with that in mind, 1 Peter chapter 3, 18-22, in its context, prepares us for suffering in a number of different ways. The first way... Verses 17 and 18, remember that Jesus suffered. The passage says, for Christ also suffered, and we too will suffer. Remember John 15, verse 20, no servant is greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. Jesus was the most honourable, uh, he was kind, he was caring, he was loving, the most truthful man that has ever lived in the world. Yet no one has suffered more than Christ did. And we shouldn't expect any different. We should not think of persecution as abnormal. It's normal for those who follow in the footsteps of Jesus closely. In fact, I would say without a doubt, the most godly people I know personally are the people who suffer the most for Jesus. So verses 18, or verses 17 and 18, prepare us for the reality that we too will suffer and we shouldn't be surprised by it. Secondly, Jesus has brought us into a relationship with God we're no longer separated from him. See the first part of verse 18. For Christ died for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. The most dangerous situation for any human being to live in is to be out of relationship with the living, holy God and not have their sins forgiven. But for those of us here who trust Jesus, we will never have our sins counted against us. Verse 18 reminds us of the righteous standing we have before God. We need not, need, we need not fear the reality of suffering for Jesus because our sins are forgiven and heaven awaits us. Now, if you'd forgive me for digressing for a moment, I would like to say something else. Perhaps the most helpful thing I read whilst preparing for this sermon was that persecution can often be thought of by Christians as abandonment. Um, as John Piper very helpfully points out, sin has been defeated. We are now safe in God's hands. 
How does all this help us to suffer? Because one of the terrible temptations in suffering is to make us think God has forsaken us. But not so. Suffering's not a sign that God's forsaken us and turned against us. Christ carried our sin, absorbed God's wrath, and brought us safe to God. I know that many are suffering in our congregation. And God wants you to know that you are safe and secure in his hands. Suffering's not God's abandoning you. We're promised in Hebrews 13.5-6 that God will never leave us nor forsake us. Our salvation cost God the life of his own son. We are precious to him. Suffering is often encouraging us in, to trust God in some way, in ways that we may never have before. It's never God abandoning us. We're secure in his arms when we belong to Jesus. Well, the third way we're encouraged in our suffering is by Noah's example of verses 19 and 20. Um, Jesus was at work in Noah's time through God's spirit. Um, Jesus was preaching to the imprisoned spirits thousands of years ago and he's still alive and active today by his spirit. The Holy Spirit is still working in the hearts of men to bring them to faith in Jesus. And this should encourage us that God is always at work despite any suffering that God might call us to endure personally. The other encouragement to us from the example of Noah is that of Noah's... Um, him and his family... Uh, they were actually in the vast minority. They were, in the, they were laughed at by the rest of humanity. But it didn't stop Noah. Um, Noah got on with God's instruction to build the ark even when there was no water to float that ark. Noah simply trusted God at his word. And in our suffering, we too are to trust God at his word. And remember that as surely as the rain came in the days of Noah, so the day will come when God will bring to an end all the suffering of those who love him. Fourthly, as we move on in verses 21 and 22, we see that Peter continues to encourage the Christians in their suffering by reminding them of baptism. The flood of Noah brought judgment and salvation. Our baptism reminds us of the judgment and salvation that we have in Christ. Our baptism serves as a wonderful picture of God's mercy, his grace, his kindness. Um, it's a tangible reminder of what Jesus has done for him. Um, it, it doesn't and cannot save us on its own baptism, as verse 18 and the second half of verse 22 make abundantly clear. Only Jesus saves us. Baptism instead reminds us of Jesus' death, his burial, um, his resurrection, and our identification with him in these experiences. And of course it's a wonderful reminder of our eternal security. 
because our salvation comes as the result of Jesus' work and, and not our own work. No amount of suffering can take that away. Commenting on these verses, um, John Piper said, when, when we come to the waters of baptism, we've passed through death and judgment. We've been buried with Christ and we have risen with him. We have passed from death to life. Judgment is past. So any suffering for the Christian cannot be the condemnation of God. That's been experienced for us by Christ. We've received that by faith and we've expressed our faith by baptism. So when you're suffering, be encouraged by what your baptism reminds you of. It reminds you of what Jesus has done for you. And lastly, um, the last way that um, we're strengthened in our suffering is in verse 22, when we see that Jesus is seated at the right hand of God, ruling over everything. See verse 22? Jesus is at God's right hand with angels, authorities and powers in submission to him. Nothing can take away from the fact that Jesus now reigns over everything. God has ordained that in this life his children will suffer. And by his grace, never beyond what they can bear. And only for their good and only for his glory. What an incredible encouragement that is, brothers and sisters, in, in, in these times which are just so uncertain. Praise God for that salvation that we have in Jesus. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word to us here at Narrow Baptist Church. We thank you that we have the answer here in 1 Peter of how we can live in harmony with one another as a great witness to the world around us. Oh Lord, forgive us for where we've failed you in this area. Please give us humble hearts that consider others better than ourselves and help us to love one another. Father, in your great mercy, help us to set apart Christ as Lord in our hearts. Help us to get our priorities right, Lord, that we might bring glory to you. And we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.